I want to welcome everybody to the assembly this morning. Uh, really uh, grateful to be here. Uh, this is my first opportunity, I think, ever to be able to worship with you on a Sunday morning. And I'm thankful for the invitation for me and my family to be with you. I wanted to say before I begin how grateful I am to all of you. Uh, the sacrifices that I know you make on, on not just my family's behalf in, in the labor of the Lord, but, but many others, and not just here, but in other places. You're greatly appreciated, and, and I believe you honor God with the great sacrifices you make. I'm grateful to be able to labor with you the next couple of weeks. Um, I've been very much looking forward to that. I've been very much looking forward to see the way that that y'all have what seems to be an operation that's been going for a long time. And I know that's a labor of love for you and your community. And uh, I'm grateful to be here for that. I hope this morning, um, as, we, as we have our eye on a couple weeks of concerted work, that our study will help us not only for the next few weeks, but be something beneficial for you as you continue to move forward throughout your life. Jackson, thank you for the prayer. I think maybe you should have prayed that I don't tumble off of here. So I am pretty klutzy. Um, I don't know if I was a, if I was to go around the room this morning and to take a poll, and I asked each and every one of you, what, how would you describe yourself? Two words or less? I don't know how many people I would walk up to, ask that question, to get the response. I'm bold and I'm confident. And you ask yourself that question, am I that person? Am I someone who is bold and confident? For many of us, we may not think we're bold or confident. We might look to the left or right of us in this room and say, well, that person over there is bold and confident, or my husband or my wife, they're bold and confident. But no, I'm not bold and confident. A lot of times we take this idea of being a bold person or confidence as something that you either have or you don't have. That it's either naturally in you or it's not naturally in you. See, you were watching my feet, weren't you? You're looking out for me. All right, I got a little close there. But it's not just something. I believe, yes, we have these natural tendencies, traits that are passed down, environments that we're raised in that shape us and the way that we are and the way that we interact in society. But I don't believe that's all there is to it. I believe that boldness and confidence is a trait that Christians should possess or strive to possess. I'm going to tell you why. It's something God's always asked of his people. It's something he said his people will be. If you'll look with me in Proverbs 28, starting in verse 1, we'll read a passage here. The scriptures will be in the King James for you on the, scripture, or on the PowerPoint this morning. If you're following along in your Bible, I encourage you, please do that. The next scripture is at the bottom of each slide. But in Proverbs 28 and 1, Solomon said, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that statement because there's so many times in my life where I don't feel bold. And I understand that the initial, that the, the, the deepest and root meaning of this passage is that those who are living in sin, they always have the shadow of God's hand on them. That there's something to be afraid of in life. And the righteous, they don't have to be worried because God is not pursuing them. God is not after them. But I'll tell you, there's a deeper piece of this, or, or at least another piece to this, where if we are with God, we have no reason to fear, and therefore we can walk through this life boldly and confidently. Now, what I don't mean by boldness and confidence is arrogance or rudeness or being outspoken. You know, Christians, we are never given the opportunity to not speak with grace or have our, have our words seasoned with salt. We're always told to temper the way that we speak that way. So when we say boldness and confidence or bold as a line, we're talking about the people who will do what needs to be done and say what needs to be said. Sometimes that's flavored. Sometimes it sounds a little bit prettier. We paint it up a little bit, but it's doing what we need to do and saying what needs to be said. Now for some people that they don't have God fully on their side or on their team or in their mind, there's always going to be something held back. And I know that's the case for myself. Whenever we try to take steps without him, we're not as confident as we would be. Whenever we're doing the right thing and we know it's sanctioned by scripture, we're gung-ho, we're all about that. What I want to know and what you need to be, what I need to be, is people who are bold as lions. People say what needs to be said, do what needs to be done when it needs to be said and done. But again, it's not always natural to us. You know why? Because 
There's a part of us that's always nagging at us, telling us we're not good enough. You know, the world spends a lot of time today. Uh, from the time I was little, I remember in the school system, they were always teaching about something called self-esteem. You've heard it. You know about it. Everybody said you need self-esteem. You won't be able to be a confident person unless you, you have pride. Unless you, are, unless you are confident in yourself. And I'll tell you, I don't believe the Bible sanctions self-esteem. In fact, we know God hates pride. There is nothing about pride that God likes. He said it's one of the ten things that he hates. Yea, they're an abomination to him. He speaks all through the scriptures about pride, against self-esteem. And so here, someone say, well, I don't understand. The Bible says I need to be bold and I be confident. But you're saying I can't have pride? How does that work? You know how it works is I stop thinking about me and I think about who God is, right? That's what we have to do. Where we have our confidence or draw our confidence from cannot be from within ourselves. I want to use Moses for an illustration. You remember there in Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 10, that God comes to him and he says, Come now therefore, and I will send thee to Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my, my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Think about this. There's a lot of times we play this game of what would I do? We do it with Peter. What would I do in Peter's situation? Don't worry, we can talk about him in a little bit too. What would I do if I was Peter? What would I do if I was Moses? And we like to think pretty well of ourselves. And I think, you know, I, I think if God came to me in a burning bush and a miracle, I'd do what he said. I don't know. Moses, Moses encounters this scene as he's out on the hillside. The bush is burning. It's not consumed. He walks forward. A voice tells him, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. He complies. The voice continues to speak to him. He knows good and well who it is, that it's a Lord, his God. And God says, I want you to go. And he doesn't go. You got it. Whatever you want. I mean, speak out of me out of a bush. That's pretty cool. You know what he immediately started doing? Is he started looking inside of himself and looking at the task. And he went, the task is this and I'm this. The first thing he said is, who am I, God? Who am I? You remember he had been somebody at one point. The adopted grandson of Pharaoh. But he threw all of that away. Threw all of that riches and that fame away. And now he's a nobody in his mind. Who stands before the Pharaoh? The kings and the queens and the dignitaries and the most uh, smart people in the world. They stand before that king at all times. He's surrounded by powerful people. And he said, I'm not one of them. I have nothing that I could use, no standing that would sway him to say, let all your slaves go. And God said, don't worry about that, right? We'll get to that. He, the next excuse he says is, who will I say sent me? He's, he still doesn't have confidence. Look, I, I, I'm going to tell him that I talked to this burning bush, but the bush wasn't burning up. And then a voice talked to me and I took my shoes off and was walking around barefooted talking to a voice coming out of the bush. They're going to believe that? Who is this? And then when I tell him, well, it was, God, it was actually God speaking out of a bush. They're going to go, you're nuts, dude. You're nuts. I have no way to prove that I actually talk to you. It's just my word versus theirs, and they're going to think that I'm crazy. And he keeps going. He says, they won't believe me at all. There's, there's no sign I could give them to back up. You are who you say you are, that I've talked to who I said I've talked to. And then even if I had the things to back it up, I won't even be able to put it into words. I feel that way sometimes, don't you? You know what you want to say, but you just can't quite get it out. I'd say that's probably why I'm long-winded. You'll find out because I want to say one thing, but it takes me three sentences to say the one word that I want to get said. But that's how Moses felt. He said, I, the best speakers, the best storytellers, the best of the best stand before him, and I'm going to stand to him in front of him as, as an uneducated fool. How could I make a persuasive argument? good enough and deliver it beautifully enough that he will be moved to his core to relinquish his workforce. That can't be done. And then at the end of it, he just looks inside of himself and after all the excuses, he says, I am not up to this task. Surely there's someone better than me. Moses had a problem. Moses' problem was is that he didn't feel confident to the task because he looked inside of himself and he was very honest about who he was. I want to tell you, he's not lying. He is not lying. He may have not been the most eloquent person. He is nobody in the grand scheme of life. He may have not had all the tools. He wasn't fooling himself. He by himself was not enough to that, to go into the greatest power at the time and say, give them up, cough them all up, let them go. 
Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. He is this small compared to the task. But what he forgot is that he serves a God who can. And that's you and I, brothers and sisters. You think about the task given to Moses. And he said, I want you to go to this powerful nation, deliver the people. That's what God said to you and me. Go you therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? That's your, we're going and we're fighting against Satan. That's spiritual power that no Pharaoh could touch. And that's who he wants you and I to go to. To go to the ones down the road who don't believe in the same God. Or go down the road to the ones who don't believe in the same gospel. To go down the road to the ones who have been addicted to the bottle. Or many other things. And he's saying, I want you to go pull them. Pull them out of sin's grasp. And you and I, we're scared because we look at that and go, how can I do this? Because none of us by ourselves are enough to do this task. But I'll tell you our God is. It doesn't matter who Moses was or who you are. God is and he is all that matters. It doesn't matter, you know, that, that we come in the name of any organization or anything. Because we come in the name of the Lord God Almighty. It doesn't matter if people won't believe us because God gives us a powerful word to use. And it doesn't matter how rude a speech you think you are. Stick to the scriptures. They're powerful. They're sharper than any two-edged sword. And at the end of the day, you can do it because God will make you able to. You don't have to believe in yourself. Believe in the Lord. And that's how you and I can be bold and confident. Remember the things that your God will do for you. Just a couple real quick that Paul said. If you look at 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7, or starting in verse 5, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves. Our sufficiency of, is of God, who also hath made us able ministers in the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter killeth, the Spirit giveth life. Now, I use the word sufficient pretty often. A lot of times it's whenever I'm doing projects around the house and I'm, you know, I'm always in a rush doing home projects and I'm trying to get through them. And for me, I get it most of the way done and I know that it isn't perfect and I go, that's sufficient. You know, I'm done. I'm done working on this. It ain't perfect, but I'm done. And that's what I, how I use the word sufficient, but that's not how he's using it here. Whenever he says sufficient, he's taking the concept that you and I are trying to fill a cup and we can only put a drop in it. And then what he does is he fills the cup the rest of the way up. My abilities may not be enough. Well, they aren't enough. But he makes me sufficient. In fact, he said he has made me an able or a capable minister of the New Testament. You want to be bold and you want to be capable? God will allow you to be that. He'll equip you to be that. He's not going to give any of us a task, whether it's Moses or you and I, a task that's too big that we can't handle, that we can't do. He'll make us sufficient to it, no matter how big it is. He'll strengthen us. Here's a verse that I believe has been hijacked by mainstream religion in the world in general, maybe our sports teams. Philippians 4.13, you know it. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And I remember when I was a boy on the football team, coach would get us all around in the locker room and he'd say, you can do th all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we'd jump up and we'd yell and we'd feel really pumped up and we'd go play football. I gotta be honest, I don't think he cares about our football games. I don't think, uh, looking back now, I don't think that he was going, you know what? 10% more endurance today, eh, Dare? You know what? A little bit bigger hit today for the highlight reel. We're going to really bring it home. I don't think that's what he cares about. I don't think that's what he's strengthening us for. You know what he's strengthening us for? Tasks that are too big for me on my own. He strengthened us for the times whenever our heart is being ripped out of our chest as we're trying to help somebody struggling and floundering in sin. That we can talk to him, that can, we can lean on others, and we can keep trying to pull people from the grasp of Satan. That's where he offers our strength. We can go to him like Jesus did in our, in our most difficult times and we can say, be with me. Don't let it be as difficult as it seems it's going to be. And we know he hears us. That's how our God will strengthen us. You can do this because God will strengthen you. And I'll tell you, we're not alone in this task. The tools that he gives us are more than sufficient. He'll make you capable because you don't have to do it with, without the right tool. You ever try to do a construction project without the right tool? I mean, if you got a box of screws and you don't have a screw gun and you got a hammer, you're in a lot of trouble. But God always gives us the right tools. A scripture you're also familiar with, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, according to his divine powers given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us into glory and virtue. Sometimes we put life in different boxes. 
We put life into different boxes and, and we think, well, whenever I want to take care of something in life, then, then I'll go talk to this group of people who look at this set of texts. And then when I want something spiritual, I'll go over here and I'll go to the Bible and I'll go to the church. And that's not how it works. If you want to be capable in all things in life, he says, go to the book. The scripture is going to take care of it. All things that pertain to life and godliness. That doesn't mean you're not going to run into difficult situations. Because life's full of difficult situations trying to help people, isn't it? I was watching TV a time back, and I saw this public servant ad that came on. I don't know what governmental agency uh, was doing it, but it was these two uh, middle-aged ladies walking the park, clearly friends, laughing and having a good walk together. And all of a sudden, the conversation kind of lulled off a little bit. And one of them stopped. She looked at her friend, concerned, and she said, I think my daughter's doing drugs. And there was a long, awkward pause in the conversation because you know that feeling, right? Someone, someone just lets you in on how bad somebody they love is struggling. And you're taken back at first. You don't know what to say. And, and the lady stopped and she finally looked to her friend who had confessed this, this tragic problem. And she said, I'm sure it's just a phase. And then it fades to black. And whatever agency it is comes on and they say, your friends don't know how to help you but we do. And I'm not here to argue about the efficacy of whatever agency to help people or things like that, but I know this. As Christians, for you and I, there's so many times we don't speak up like we ought to because these, these questions are tough. These situations are heartbreaking and they're brutal and there's not always a simple answer. There are times people will, will bring something up to you and you're sitting there going, what do I do with this? I don't even know where to start. That's okay. That's okay if you don't know where to start immediately. Take a step back. Tell them, I don't know if you got to. They'll respect that rather than spouting off some baloney. And then go to someone who has gone through it in the church and open up that Bible with them and find the answers of life because I guarantee you're there. They're there. You look at all these different forums online and all these self-help books and these quasi-religious writers out there and they're going to tell you all these different ways to live life and handle problems. But if you really want to handle them, go to the book and go to the people who have been in that book and have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, the ones who stood in those awkward conversations and didn't know what to say at one point and then had to go Search out the riches of God's instructions and put it to work and help your friends. We can be bold because God will give us every answer that we need. You can be bold even if you feel like you're not. You can be bold even if you don't feel equipped. You can be bold even if you don't feel like you're knowledgeable enough to speak up. You can be. God will allow you to. But there's roadblocks. There's things that stand in our way. And I want to talk about just a couple of those this morning. Just a couple. I think one of the biggest things that plagues us, and of course you could do a handful of them, but I'm going to talk first of all, I guess, about not being truly committed to a mission. I think that's something that hinders us from really speaking like we ought to speak in this life for God, because we're just not all the way to committed to the missions that he has put on our table. I mentioned Peter a while ago, and I want to give you a for instance with Peter. We give Peter a pretty hard time because of this conversation in Luke 22. Luke 22 and verse 31, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Uh, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Remember that statement right there. That's the mission that God has given. When you're truly converted, I want you to strengthen thy brethren. Well, Simon, Peter, he goes, I am committed, right? I, I'm all the way in. I don't want you talking about not committed. He said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both unto prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, that the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. You believe him. I mean, do you, a lot of time I look at Peter and go, you're really not ready to go to jail or prison for him. I think that's how I look at it a lot of times, but I got to be honest, the more I've looked at this story, look at the events that unfolded afterwards, and I think that he really was ready to, to die or to go to jail. You think about the story that, that unfolds after this, immediately after what Jesus says is going to come true, comes true. And as they meet Jesus in the garden, Jesus said, behold, they come. And whenever Judas betrays him with a kiss and says, Hail, Master, and they lay hands on Jesus, Peter didn't turn tail and run, folks. You know what he was ready to do? Go to prison or die trying to defend his Lord. Because he whips his sword out of the scabbard. I assume he had a scabbard. And he flails out. I, I don't think he was trying to chop an ear off, but that's all he got. He got an ear. 
And it's very lucky that everything didn't break loose right then and that a bunch of people weren't killed. Doesn't sound like they had a big enough group to really face them. But it all stops because Jesus reaches down and he picks up the ear and he tells him to put away his sword and he puts the ear back on him. And it was then that Peter's confidence failed him. Why is that? He wasn't completely dedicated to what that mission really was. It was at that moment where he, he what do you mean? Put the ear back on him. I just told you. I just told you I would die for you. I'd go to jail. and you, If I can't do this, if it's not with a sword, what am I supposed to do? How can I protect my brethren? How can I protect you without this? He knew that the, that wasn't right, but what can I do now? All of his faith was invested in his might to physically defend him. The fishermen against the servants of the priests, right? But he had confidence that he could fight them off with the sword. But when he realized that wasn't his mission... He didn't know what to do, so he ran. And there's a lot of times if we're not committed to that mission, not fully committed, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do, say what we need to say. Jesus, you know, he's in that grave for three days, just as he said that he would, just as the prophets prophesied that he would be. And whenever the women see that he is gone and he's arisen, they come back and they tell Peter and the other apostles who are gathered in the room praying. Peter runs to the tomb and he sees that the tomb is empty, sees the, the grave clothes that are folded up, and he marvels at it, and then he goes fishing. I mean, this isn't just a random, you know, day of clearing our head. He went back to his career, and along with him, he dragged some of his brethren, the ones that Jesus said, strengthen whenever he's gone, right? Whenever you committed, strengthen the brethren. And you remember that as they're out there fishing, Jesus comes to them, and, and immediately Peter knows it's him, and he jumps off the boat, doesn't wait for it to get to shore, and intriguingly, Jesus seems to have prepared a meal of fish for them right there. And then they have what I would call maybe the most awkward dinner ever. It says that they dared not ask him who he was, knowing who he was. They just sat in quiet and they watched Jesus. Jesus didn't say anything. And then as maybe the meal is ending, Peter looks across the fire and across the fish and you remember the story that he starts asking him. And he said, do you love me more than these? What are these? It's the fish. The fish that he had gone back to, to giving his life over to. Do you love me more than these fish? And he says, of course that I do. And he says, then why don't you feed my lambs? Do you love me more than these fish? Of course you know I do, Lord. Well, then why don't you feed my sheep? Peter, do you love me more than these fish? And he says, of course I do, Lord. You know all things. You know that I love you. Then why are you out here with these fish and dragging your brethren away from this mission, away from this life with these fish? Strengthen my, your brethren. Feed the sheep. He says it to him over and over, and I believe Peter got it then. Before it was a battle of flesh and blood, and he was, he was fully prepared for that. But now he goes, okay. It's a spiritual battle. All right. I'm in. And he was all in, wasn't he? At that point, Peter's ready to lay it all on the line. He did not live an easy life for the Lord in the New Testament, along with the other apostles. They lived a hard life, and he put it on the line. He stood up on the day of Pentecost among many, many thousands of Jews, and he stood before them, and what did he do? He preached the gospel. He preached Jesus. He preached Christ crucified and risen from the grave, Christ sitting on the throne, a Christ and the Son of God that all of his compadres, all these Jews had just put to death. He was finally committed. He understood the cause. And I got to ask you and me, are you not bold because you're not completely committed to the cause of the gospel? Are you and I not saying the things that we need to say and doing the things that we need to do when we need to do them because we're not all in on the gospel? I think that may be the case. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, the apostle Paul teaching there says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and everyone may receive the things they've done in this body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And then he says this, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. A lot of people believe in hell, folks. You believe in hell. Jesus believed in hell. I believe he taught on hell about as much or more as anybody else in the scripture. There are a lot of people out there that don't believe in a hell. And as much as we say we believe in a hell, we just don't act like it all that often. 
We don't talk about it enough, I think, probably. Because it's not fun, is it? You know what I don't enjoy? I don't enjoy thinking about my loved ones going to hell. You know what would be real nice? Is if there wasn't a hell, that'd be awesome. If we all got to go be with God, if we all got to spend eternity with him, where all is peace and no tears and no suffering and no sickness and no loss, I'd love that, wouldn't you? To just be with everybody you love forever. But that's just not the case. And these apostles, people like Peter, people like Paul, they were committed to teaching the gospel and saying what needed to be said because they said it's going to be horrible. Knowing the terror of the Lord, how bad is hell going to be? Sometimes we talk about burning our hand on a pot and how bad it is. And you think about hell. It's going to be more than burn our hand on a pot. Maybe some of you have experienced a, a heavier degree of burn. It's going to be worse than that. Think about all the loss that is in this world without any of the good. Think about all the hopelessness that is in the world without any of the hope. Think about a place where there is no light. Think about a place where there is only chaos. Think about your son going there. And you think about your daughter going there. And your friends going there. Your mama going there. And your coworkers. It's a horrible place. How invested are we in warning people? You know what's, what's crazy, brothers and sisters, is whenever whenever. Whenever storms are coming, I get phone calls from all over the nation. Ellen's mama calls me from Oklahoma, which is like Tornado Alley, to call me about, did you know you're in a tornado watch? Yeah, we know. She doesn't worry about that it seems maybe a little silly, this tornado watch. You know why? She cares. She even likes me. I, I think. But we don't worry about it with things like that. But when we know something awful is coming, we just speak up. We reach out. We don't say, well, I'm worried that they're going to push me away because I warned them about a tornado. But we do that when it comes to the gospel. Well, I don't want to push them away. What do you mean push them away? They're not in the fold. Well, I, I don't want to make them uncomfortable. What do you mean? And Jesus said the whole, or God said the whole point of being in a house of mourning is to reflect on the uncomfortable and to get us focused on life. Well, I just don't want to hurt their feelings. Sometimes my feelings need hurt. Not because somebody's mean, but somebody cares enough about me to reach out and say something. You're sitting here today as the redeemed. You have a hope of everlasting life. You walk around bold as lions, carefree. The hand of the Lord is not on you. You're not fearful of the incoming. Why? Because you're going to go be with them, brothers and sisters. But there are too many people out there who are not, and they're not going to go if we don't speak up and say something. Do you understand the earth? Urgency of life, and if we really understand that, we stop hiding behind, I'm just not that person. I, I'm just not an outgoing person. I'm not the Apostle Paul. Well, I'm not the brother so and so who isn't afraid to have a conversation, or a sister so and so. We got to stop that. We got to understand the terror of the Lord, and we need to save people from it. Do you understand the urgency of life? We look at these people who seem to be naturally bold and we think, I'm not like them. They've got it easy. I wish I could be like them. But I'll tell you, even the most naturally bold or perceived boldness and, and confident people, they need help being this in the kingdom. Examine again the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. What he's doing here is he's begging the prayers of his brothers and sisters in the church. People like you and me. Starting at verse 19. He says, And for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, that I may make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, therein that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, ought to speak there means that there is an expectation and Paul said, there was an expectation from God that I should speak a certain way. It wasn't timidly. It wasn't with great reservation. It wasn't only if I must or if the situation is the most dire. He said, I ought to speak boldly. So brethren, pray for me. But wait a minute, Paul, why do you mean me pray for you? You ought to be the one praying for me, right? You're the bold one. You're the one who wrote this, this couple of letters to the Corinthians and it wasn't real pleasant. You had the courage to say those things. You had the courage to take a stoning to the point that people thought you were dead and then pop up from the ground and get on after it the next day. Now this guy, 
This guy who knew the terror of the Lord, who was all in for the souls like you and me, he said, I, I really can't do this. I really can't do this without your prayers. And I, I really think we need to be praying about this a lot more often. How often do you sit there and pray for each other, brothers and sisters? Do you pray for your sons and your daughters? Do you pray for your deacons and your elders? Do you pray for the mamas in here and the wives? Pray for our young people that they will be able to stand up for what's right and what's true. They need those prayers. You know, it's, it's incredible to me. I feel very thankful to be, to be able to do the work that I'm in, to, to get to go to meetings all the time and, and to be invested in the gospel. I feel very blessed, but it is always humbling and it doesn't ever get old that every now and then when I'm on meetings, someone will text me. And sometimes I don't even know the number, but I know it's somebody who knows me, somebody in the church, and they'll say, we heard about your meeting. We hope that the church there prospers. So they'll, they'll say, we're praying for you. And people that I do know. You know, I don't know if you know Cody Brockard. If you're on Facebook, you know Cody Brockard. He knows everybody. That boy doesn't care about anything but the church back home. And he can, uh, he talks and he talks and he'll text and text. He'll wear your phone out. He never fails to text me about going on at work. And that means something. And I know it means something to you. That you know that there are other people out there praying for you whenever you're trying to get the courage to talk to somebody that you know you're risking an awful lot to go visit with them about the gospel. To have somebody reach out and say, you can do this. You need to do this. Do you need somebody with you? Pray for one another. I encourage you to do that. Pray for me. I'll be praying for you, brothers and sisters. We need to commit to the gospel. I think we need to commit to more than just the idea of the gospel, to the be the people we ought to be. We need to commit to a concept of morality that is greater than what this world offers. Because the world is seductive and it's really, in a lot of ways, erased the moral code that God has set for his people over time. You look at the writing of Paul to Timothy in Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, he said, if I tarry long, or if I'm long-winded writing this, no, it's just because I want you to know how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And I want you to know that a lot of times if your elders talk for a long time, I don't know if they do, if somebody talks for a long time, it's because they love you and they're trying to get everything in they can. Like the Elijahs before they leave the world and leave Elisha on their own, they're saying, is there anything else I need to tell you? People are trying to not leave anything out. And that's what he's doing with Timothy. He said, if I'm spending a lot of time writing this, it's because there is a standard that needs to be set and the church has to set it. And that's you and me. He says that the church should be this pillar. You think about pillars on, on great buildings that have stood through the years. I think about things overseas. You know, I, I know it's a, a temple of pagan and awfulness, but think about those Colosseum buildings over there in, in Rome. They stood for a long time, not all of them, but there's still columns standing there. Some of those plantations that the Civil War raged all around them, those columns are still standing on some of those homes. Why? Because they're big and they're heavy and the wind can blow and fights can rage around them and they just stand the test of time. They're resolute. And that's what Paul is saying for you and I in the church. He said, we need to be this pillar that stands resolute that everyone looks to and they know what these people stand for. Do people know what you stand for? Do they look at your moral code or the way that they live your, your liver, that you live your life and they go, why do you live that way? Why is it that you're doing that? Why are you this per why, why are you leading your home, husbands? That's not real, a not real prominently accepted idea today. That a home is led by the husband and that a wife is to be in submission. Does it mean that one is better than the other? No, it doesn't. We know that as Christians. What it means is that there is an order inside of the home that creates peace and promotes godliness and spirituality. Why are you disciplining your kids? Why are you spanking them babies? That's the way I hear it a lot. Why are you spanking them babies? Because God said those babies need to learn to respect authority and to fear the Lord so that they won't be punished forever. I'll tell you, we hide sometimes. We hide in plain sight, Christians. We hide behind little statements that I, I think are meant to be positive, so I ain't ragging on it, but things like, you might be the only Bible that this world ever reads. I know the intention behind that is, if you live right, that people will look at you and your life, 
And maybe having never read the scriptures, they'll see something that, that causes them to go search the scriptures. But what we do is we hide behind those things and say, well, I don't have to be this great teacher. I don't have to be somebody who stands in a pulpit. Sure, you don't. You may not be someone who, guys, you may never be somebody who stands behind a pulpit. Well, I don't got to be somebody who is a, a Titus 2 man or a Titus 2 woman teaching all these things. I beg to differ. The Lord begs to differ. Hebrews 5, starting verse 12 through 14, he's really up on some folks there. He said, there's a time you ought to be teachers. There's a time for each and every one of you in here. You ought to be a teacher of something in some capacity whenever it comes to spiritual matters. But will we grow? Will we step up to that task? What I want to do is think, well, I just walk quietly through this life and I'll draw attention to myself. Why? Because walking through this world and getting an attention isn't very positive nowadays, is it? It's not pleasant. That's why we worry when we're in the grocery stores if we've got to get it onto our kids. It's why we worry whenever we're in a group of guys who are ragging on their old ladies, as they put it, to not participate. It's why we worry when everybody else is talking about going out and carousing that we just kind of fade into the background. Brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about being rude. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about being Bible thumpers and beating people with a Bible. We're talking about being bold as we ought to be bold. And I don't believe scripturally we can just stand to the side and walk quietly through life with our head down at our feet and be right with our Lord. But don't let take my word. Let's go back to Proverbs 28 and 4. And he says, they that forsake the law praise the wicked. Boy, we see that, don't we? You want to know who the loudest people are in the world? It's the people who are doing wrong. And they're screaming all that is right and they're trying to destroy it. We see that around us today. You've seen it all your life. I hear people say it's getting worse and worse. I don't know. It's just pretty bad all the time, I think. But he said the wicked, they forsake the law and they praise the people who are forsaking the law. But such as keep the law, contend with them. It doesn't say that they quietly walk around them and avoid them. He says contend. You know what that means? To contest. To fight against. Now, he's not calling us to a physical war. He's not calling us to be the one that goes, ah, ah, you can't cuss. You sinner, you can't. He's not talking about being obnoxious people. He's talking about setting an example, living a life that shines out to people, and using that as a platform to teach. We avoid too many opportunities to teach because we're trying to be quiet. You got an opinion? It's okay to use your opinion sometime. To say your opinion. Let it be seasoned with grace. Make sure that it is fitly spoken. Make sure it's said with all the love and kindness that you can have. Be a reasonable person. But teach and shine the light of Christ. We can't, I, you know, I, I felt this way, especially as a young guy. But even now, if I'm not careful, you know what I did in my community? Because there wasn't a whole lot of Church of Christ where I grew up. And I walk around and people say, oh, I know you, you your folks, you go to the Church of Christ over there. And I go, yeah. Please don't get into doctrine. Please don't get into doctrine in my mind. Well, you the guys, you the people who hate singing. I didn't know how to answer that at one point. Now, we don't. Or you hate music, that's the word. You hate music. Oh, no, we love music. But that's not how to answer back then. You know what I did? No, we, we, no, we like music. We, we like music, but... Well, you, you are the, you're those water dogs. You're those people who believe you have to do something to be saved. Baptism. Boy, I'm scared of that fight right there. Please don't bring up no cause before we get to the first four parts of the five-part study. Look. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to walk through ashamed. The other thing we do is we say, who am I? Who am I that I can tell anybody else how they ought to be living? Who am I to say that somebody can do something different in their parenting? Who am I to tell somebody that this isn't right and drinking is uh, going out and getting drunk and carousing is wrong and this lifestyle is wrong? Who am I? I'll tell you who you are. Through Christ, you're the sons of Abraham. And you're the sons and daughter of Isaac. You're the army of the living God. You're the pillar and the ground of truth. You're God's. I'm going to say it again. Whenever you say, who am I to be able to do this? 
You are the sons and daughters of Abraham, the sons and daughters of Isaac. You are the army of the great Hosanna. You are the church of the living God, the only God. You are the pillar of the ground of truth. You are lions, brothers and sisters. He did not make us to be timid men who walk around quietly through this life. He told us to walk about confidently, not because of who we are and because of what we are, but because of who he is and what he is and what he's allowed us to do. And so we can speak and we can live. And no matter what they do to us, no matter what they say about us, no matter who forsakes you, you can be a lion. And I'll tell you, as a lion, you'll walk right into eternity because that's what he does for his creation. And maybe you'll take some people with you. But I won't if I'm not a lion. You won't if you're not a lion. At the end of the day, all the things that that keep us from being bold and confident and saying what needs to be said and doing what needs to be done, it's not just about a commitment to a mission. It's about pressing down fears. And I guess this is what I could have just started with today and said, if you want to be bold, don't be scared of people, right? We could have boiled it all down to that. I think that's where a lot of it comes from. This is my, my go-to excuse on a lot of things here in John 7. There was a lot of people who saw Jesus do things. A lot of Jews said, how be it no man spake openly him for fear of the Jews. I figure one excuse is as good as another. So when someone says, why did you do this? I say, for fear of the Jews. Which I know may be taking it out of context. But like I said, one excuse is as good as another. But I believe that we don't do a lot of things for fear of the Jews, brothers and sisters. We're scared of people. I'm scared of people. I'm petrified of people sometimes. Sometimes even the people who I sit in the pews with. Because I let fears and worries prevent me from doing what I need to do to love them. And I think we can all relate to that. We live in a world that's scary. The Jews, they were worried about what others were going to do. They're worried about the people like Paul. They're worried about the zealots. They're worried about somebody who's going to chase them down and stone them. Doing things like that because they confess the name of Jesus and they live a holy life and they do these things. We cannot be scared. I spent a lot of, I spent a lot of my time, you know, of course, talking with, with different folks in the church and, and guys and gals for that matter. But a couple years ago, a couple years ago, we... We're having, I think it's that men's study down in Cedar Hill, Texas, near Dallas, where we were at. And one of the topics that year was, um, goodness, I lost it. It was something about counseling and all that goodness. But, uh, oh, I know what it was. So we were talking about the legal side of things. I caught it. I remembered it. We were talking about the legal side of things. What can I do to make sure that I don't overstep the bounds of the law? Because we need to observe the laws of the land, obviously. And then why do I need to make sure that I'm not forsaking the laws of God? So we're trying to walk this balance. And and I believe life is full of walking that balance. The laws of man versus the laws of God and doing the right thing. But a lot of my conversation of that surrounded over the past handful of years, maybe the last 10 even, is around how do I avoid incarceration? How do I avoid not doing something that gets me arrested? How do I avoid saying something in the pulpit that makes sure, ensures that I'm not thrown into prison? How do I make sure that I stay, I say just enough, but not not too much so that I don't lose my bakery? How do I say just enough, but not too much so that I don't lose this Christmas time with my kinfolks? I spent a lot of time worrying about those things and talking about those things. And I know you can relate because we're pretty much the same brothers and sisters. We talk about a lot of the same things. We worry about these things because we see, we're not blind. We're not deaf. We see and hear the things going around, going on in the world. We look at India. We know what it's like over there. Not near as bad over here. Uh, the last two years, I'm telling you, it's, that's all we have talked about. How do I make sure to not get in trouble with the law? What if you got arrested for preaching the gospel? I had someone tell me a little while back, well, a lot of somebody's, you know, it's getting to the point where we're not going to be able to teach the gospel anymore. You know what I, I say? I say baloney. They can't make you stop preaching the gospel. And you say, well, Brother Lee, you don't realize they're going to outlaw the preaching of the gospel and teaching about, you know, right living and heterosexuality and all these different things. And we're not going to be able to teach on anything or they'll throw us in jail. What can we do then? You know what we can do? Preach the truth. That's what we can do. What if you get thrown in jail? 
What did Paul do? Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I would that you understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Wait a minute. You got arrested and it's furthered the gospel? I thought that was supposed to effectively end it. I thought we couldn't preach anymore if we got arrested. And he said, no, the gospel is furthered there. He said, so that my bonds are in Christ or my bonds in Christ are manifest into all the palace. So he's teaching the people around there and in all other places, not just there. He didn't just have a local effect. He had a broad effect, even though he was confined to one place. And he said, many of the brethren of the Lord, you know what they did? They got real scared and they holed up and they just waited it out till he was released. No, I made that up. That's not what happened. You know what he says there? He said that many of the brethren, they waxed confident in my bonds and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I worry the opposite's going to happen. I worry if, if Brother Van gets arrested and thrown into prison, that it's going to make you or, I or, you or I more timid to go do what's going to happen. Or if Brother Matthew gets incarcerated for standing up and teaching the truth, then I'm going to go, well, we got to be more careful of the boundaries and I'm going to shrink back from that task. You know, people who are dedicated to the mission, they don't do that. That's not what happened. In fact, he said they became more confident. Well, that's what waxing is there. It's not like your vehicle waxing it. It's a growing in something. And they grew more confident, brothers and sisters. I, you know what I'm not telling you this morning? I'm not telling you to go out there and get yourself arrested. <laughs> don't be reckless. Scripture says be wise, and as, wise as a serpent, harmless as doves. Be, be judicious. But don't hold back the truth. Don't hold back the hope that you have inside of you. Don't hold back a treasure of scripture that can help a family have more peace in it. Don't hold back. And if you're the person, if you're the, if you're the tip of the iceberg, maybe you're the very first person. I don't know what's going to happen in the coming years. I don't like to speculate, but I'll just say, even if it got real bad over here, even if it got real bad and they're looking and they're hunting for Christians like they used to, and they're taking us and throwing a prison, if you're the tip of the iceberg, don't hold back. And you know what? Whenever you see your brethren incarcerated like that, maybe we would take more hope. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe what it was, and this is what I think it is, that I'm sure they were fearful for him. Folks were even fearful for Jesus at times, right? Don't go here, Jesus. is going to be real bad. We worry about our brethren. But they watched Paul put it all on the line, get thrown in prison. They went, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it too. Maybe that's what it takes, brothers and sisters. Maybe that's what it takes for me to step up and stop saying, I'm too shy, I'm too scared, there's too much at risk. To say, you know what? If they're willing to do that, to go to that length, I can do it too. I can say this at least. I can say a little bit more. Maybe, you know what? All great resurgences and battles and things like that, it takes at least one person charging, right? Maybe it takes a Paul who says, I'll go to prison. Maybe it takes a David who finally gets off his side of the mountain so that the armies of Israel will pile in after him and chase the Philistines down. Maybe it's you. Maybe because you choose to be bold and you do the right thing and you quote unquote pay the price that you motivate everybody else to do it. Will it be you? Could it be you? We're, we're hamstringing ourselves, brothers and sisters. In a lot of different ways. I really believe one of the ways that we're hamstringing ourselves is we just don't spend enough time encouraging one another on our missions. We live in a busy world, folks. I don't know, I hear that it, I was telling on the other day, it felt real simple when I was a kid in the 90s. And I remember sitting in an old 1990 Toyota Camry without even a tape deck and listening to 90s country and going down dirt roads and feeling like there was no cares in the world and not a lot going on. And I don't feel that way anymore. Now as a parent and with other responsibilities, as a husband, as a member in the kingdom, I sit back and sometimes I go, how in the world am I going to squeeze everything into a day? How, how am I going to fit everything into a month? Must let you, must let, must much, is, how am I going to fit into a year? We'll just go there. I'll not try to say much less. Yeah. There's just not enough time and, and they're not going to make any more of it. 
But we've got to make decisions to be around one another. I believe that's one of the things that the first generation Christians did that we have to make sure is a priority in our life. You may get tired of this verse. I know I use it all the time. Maybe you hear it a lot. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. He said, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as we see the day approaching. I think this is a very broad teaching. I don't think he's talking about just this morning. I hear people make all kinds of arguments for why they can't be with the saints. Why they can't be with the saints on Sunday morning. I especially hear it about Sunday. Sunday even the Wednesday night for those places. Well, we're commanded to meet one time. We ain't commanded to meet three times a week. Come on, give me a break. You're missing the point. Well, I'll be there on Sunday, but I don't have to go to this get-together and things like that. You're missing the point. This isn't about me just coming here and, and taking this communion, though it's very important, brothers and sisters. It's, it's the beginning of our week to, to reflect on Christ and know what he did, but it's something we do together. You can't do it alone. You do it together with people. And you walk into this building, right? You walk into this building. You know what I did today? People I haven't seen in years walked up and gave me hugs. They remembered me even though I'm a little fat or a little bald or things like that. And they were excited to see me. Or maybe at least excited to see my wife. And I watch people lift their voices in song together and harmonize. And that lifts me up. Some beautiful songs this morning. We don't have this song book. And I love some of the songs that were led this morning we don't have. But what if this is all there was? That's what I see here. And I think about what if this is all I had? I need people during the week, brothers and sisters. I need somebody to call and to talk to and say, you know what, I didn't do as well today as a dad. And I talk to some of these other guys who have been doing it for a lot longer than me and say, how do I fix this problem? I need that. You know what I also need is whenever I don't make that call and someone to be involved enough in my life to be able to call me out on it. And I can't do that if I'm not with the saints. You know what I need? I need the people like Gaius. That's third John. You remember Gaius was an elder there and he was really praised by John because of his hospitality and people will come in, they're road weary from preaching the gospel. Even the strangers come into the home and he'd take care of them. And he said, you sent them out after a more godly sort. He was refreshing them to go take the, the message to the lost. It's so lonely sometimes. I know a lot of you probably knocked doors before. Probably the least, most least, the least effective way of evangelizing today, probably. But it's got its place. Even the, the names and, and numbers and folks who we're going to go see this week. I'll tell you this. There's going to be rejection. You don't have a 100% hit rate. You know what gets real hard to keep doing? It's hitting door after door after door of person who says, get out. I don't want it. And through the weekly grind, we need people, we need people close in our life who can say, it's okay, we're going to go do it again. Whenever I say, I can't take this anymore, they're going to say, yeah, you can, you can keep going. I need someone who, whenever I say, I just, I don't have the right words, they're going to say, that's right, you don't have the right words, let's go to the Bible. And they'll remind me, here's the scripture you use. And if they don't want it, it's not about you. Lee, don't think too much of yourself. Just use the word. Let them look to Jesus or not look to Jesus. We need those people on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And I, and I, and I, I challenge you. Don't find time to spend with people this week or in the coming weeks and days. Make time. Because... The future of the gospel depends on you and I being involved enough in one another's life to keep each other encouraged to keep pressing forward. Otherwise, our fear of men is going to destroy us. As we close this morning, just a few more scriptures. One of the things that I forget, one of the reasons that I am, I am not as bold as I ought to be is because I forget the spirit that God has really put into all of his people. And 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 through 8, he said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. I, I was thinking about this verse a couple years ago. Me and a couple other fellows are on a plane flying over the Grand Canyon, and there's a lot of turbulence. I don't like planes anyways. But I thought, it's just awful that I'm scared anyways in a plane, but then I'm in a, a much higher place because it's the Grand Canyon, you know, as the wings are flapping like a crow out my window. 
You got Clint and Mike sitting over there just laughing at me because they can tell I'm nervous, you know. And I'm just sitting there going, he's not getting a spirit of fear. He's not getting a spirit of fear. You know, it gave me some strength in that moment to think about that, that there's hope, there's more beyond this. But I'll tell you where this really has a bigger impact on me. And it comes to these conversations, these different situations in life where I have a chance to say a word fitly spoken to help somebody or not. Because I forget too often the spirit that God put in us is not fear. I forget that he has given us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. And he said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor me as prisoner, but be, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. I forget that, that I have something powerful. And too often, you and I, brothers and sisters, we act like we're powerless. Whenever someone comes up with a different doctrine than what we learn in the Scriptures, we act like there's nothing we can do. Like we're stumped, we're worried, we're afraid to talk about it. No cause. Pre, uh, you know, everlasting salvation and things like that. Excuse me. Perseverance of the saints. Sorry, well, I got that one way mixed up. We act like these different doctrines are the end of it for us. We act like because someone has a different opinion that we don't have a powerful tool at our disposal. In too many of these moments, I forget that God is a God of power and that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God or the pulling down of strongholds and the casting down of imaginations and every high thing that exalted, against, exalted itself against God and to bring into captivity every thought unto Christ. I forget that we've got a mighty weapon. That's what you forget. Whenever is, someone is upset with us or they don't want to hear us or they think that their lifestyle is better than what God prescribes, we forget that the only answer is God's answer and it's powerful. It's the one that takes the ones who've been addicted for years and changes them. Not you and me and our charisma and our tactics. It's the power of the message. The sword that is, is sharper than any other that can divide even the soul and the spirit from itself. That knows the thoughts and intents of all mankind when we don't. You know, you go over to India and they got all these different gods over there. You got that Hanuman God. He's the one, I think he's the first one I ever saw when I went over there. And I remember Hanuman, this monkey man God, and his claim to fame, as I remember right, is that one time the village was in danger and he picked it up above his head and ta-da, the village was saved. And look how powerful he is. Our God is more powerful than that. He's more powerful than that message. You know what your God did, my God did? There was nothing and he created it all. How about that? Is there, anything, is there anything bigger than that? There was no rain and he flooded a world. There were no people and he created it. There was, there was no hope and he gave his son. You've got a powerful message so don't be afraid whenever you're standing against those who need help. He said we have a message of love. Don't be afraid because we have a loving message. The people in this world today say it isn't loving to say that folks are wrong. If you really love me, you don't want me to change. If you really love me, you won't talk to me. At holidays, we can't speak politics and religion so we can keep the peace. And I say the time for that's over, brothers and sisters. If we know the terror of the Lord, if we know the terror of the Lord, we will speak boldly as we ought to speak and we will speak in love because what mama in her right mind doesn't reach out thousands or hundreds of miles away and say, the tornado's coming. Which, which just good citizen in the world doesn't walk up to the stopwalk and grab the little child who's running out there after the ball? That's love. Love pre prevents chaos. Love is not standing back giving people their space. Love is not standing back just not saying anything whenever people are ruining their soul and messing up their homes and destroying their eternity. That's not love. Love saves. And Jesus proved that whenever he said the hard things, did the hard things, served the ones who hated his guts, and died on the cross for even you and me who didn't deserve it. That's love. And that's why he can be bold. Sometimes I forget he's given me a spirit of a sound mind because, to be honest, sometimes I don't have a sound mind. Those tough moments, you know those times whenever you know you're fixing to have to go have a conversation with somebody and you don't want to do it. It's not a conversation that popped up that day. It's one that's been coming for a while. And for months you'll sit there and think on that thing. But as the time gets closer, you know what I do? Is I start running scenarios in my brain. 
what I call a brain. Doesn't become much of one after a little bit. And I think, you know what, I'm going to go in there. And I, I devise my, my conversation and my argument carefully. I masterfully craft it in my brain, you know. I'm going to say it this way. Here's the word I'm going to use instead of this word. Here's this scripture instead of this scripture. And it's going to be good. But then time becomes my enemy. Time becomes my enemy and, and fear couples along with that. And I start second guessing the word of God. And I start thinking, well, I know I'm going to say this, but what if they say this then? Well, I'll say this then. But then, what if they say that? Well, I'll say this. But then, what if they, what if they say this? What am I going to say then? And then, what if, they, what if they take it this way and they think I mean this? What if they hate me? What if this divides the church? What if this, I go on this what if rant and it just destroys my ability to walk in boldly and I am just a nervous wreck. You don't believe me, ask Ellen. And I'll pace the, I'll keep everybody up because I can't sleep. And that's not the spirit he's given you and me. He said a sound mind. I can only have that if I'm utilizing the tools of the Lord. Not worrying about what I can and what I can't do. I can't worry about what they are or they aren't going to do. I just have to worry about what he's called me to be. You want to be a bold person? Shut out the outside what ifs. Shut out the what ifs and look at what he says is. That the righteous are bold as lions. You want some more reasons why you can be bold as a lion? You can be bold because our God is always with you. He always warned the prophets or told the prophets and he tells you and me in the Great Commission. David, he was confident in this fact. He said, in God, I've put my trust. I won't be afraid of what man can do to me. Your vows are upon me. I will render praises unto thee. Look, you made a commitment to the Lord Nobody knew that better than David. He didn't always do it right, but he tried to get back on track. You're not always going to do what you ought to do. Be bold like you ought to be bold. But we get up and we keep trying to press forward to be better from there. Saying what needs to be said. I'm, you know, nothing makes you more sick than opportunities missed. Don't miss anymore. Don't, don't pass up anymore. Study. Pray. Interact with people. Be built up and be ready for the next time that you can exercise and make good on the vows that you've made to your Lord. That you said, Lord, whenever I become your disciple, it means that I will go, therefore, into every nation. It means that I will utilize Galatians 6 and 1. If I see a brother overtaken in a fault, I'll restore him. I will be a Titus 2 man or a Titus 2 woman at some point who will help train the next generation. I will be bold. And I know you'll be right there with me. You're never alone, no matter how alone you feel in those times, God's with you. You can be bold because the Lord is with you. You can be bold because no matter what happens, it's going to be okay one of these days. In, in Philippians 1 verses 19 through 21, he says, I know this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I'll be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether it be in life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Are you sold on that? We spend a lot of our life trying to avoid death. It's coming. Unless he really blesses us, like only a couple people I know of in the scripture, death's coming. The question is, what am I going to do with the time before then? He says, I hope my expectation, my earnest expectation is that I won't have anything to be ashamed of at the end of that. But I'll continue to be bold, always. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted for himself. It's what he wanted for others. It's what he wants for you. It's what Christ expects of you, that you be bold. I'm going to back up for just a minute, not long. I forgot to look at the last of this verse right here. Oh, I'm shining the back. You're not looking that direction. The afflictions of the gospel. I'll tell you there's an invitation. We're going to have an invitation here in a minute. And it's to anyone who needs the, the help of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's to come to him and obey the gospel, to have your sins removed, or whether it's to have help to speak as you need to speak, to do as you need to do, to be bold, or with whatever spiritual need is. But I want you to look at this invitation here. Paul said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of me, of the Lord, or me, a prisoner. But be a partaker in the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You know what a good invitation is? Birthday parties, for the most part. Been to some bad ones. Those are good invitations, though, most of the time. Cake, ice cream, I like it. You get invitations to weddings. Cake, again, 
you know? Lots of cake. Good invitations. The invitation we'll have in a moment is the best invitation you'll ever have to give your life over to Christ or receive the help of him and the brothers and sisters of the church. Those are good invitations. But this invitation seems a little bit strange, you know? Because he says, I invite you to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. He didn't say, come on with me. We're going to have a great time as we go share this message. Everything's going to grow smoothly. The souls will fold before the Lord. The ears will be open. It's smooth sailing. He says, partake in the afflictions. I think we need to know that there's going to be hard times. If we're not prepared, it's going to hit us like a ton of bricks. But I'll tell you that this, this invitation to be a partake in the afflictions of the Lord, there, there isn't a better one. Because there is no other God who will be with us through, through anything. There is no other God who will give us insanely monumental tasks and then give us every ability to be ever to do it. There is no other greater group of people to work with than the ones that you're sitting with today. There is no better people to live this life with in the church of God, to go through loss with. To go through the times where you're heartbroken. To go through the times where you just, you just don't have the strength for a moment to do what needs to be done anymore. There is no better people to be with than men like Paul and brothers and sisters like are in this room and across this world today worshiping God. And together, and together for as long as he'll give us, we need to remember that even if it's not in my nature, even if I wasn't born with that characteristic. That he's called you and me to be bold. This week and through the rest of your life, I, I hope that's something you take with you. Something where you might fight against the things that keep you silent and you speak as you ought to speak. Brothers and sisters, you're fighting for righteousness in your life. Allow that righteousness to allow you to be bold. If you do have a need of the kingdom this morning, if you regret the things that you haven't said and you want to do better in the future and maybe you need the strength of the prayers of a brother or sister this morning, we ask you to stand on this front, sit on this front pew while we sing this last song.